This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series with friends like these, where I share cases where friends turn upon friends and become deadly. This week, I share a shockingly brutal case where a young man is murdered by his very best friend. Fair warning, the violence in this case is particularly brutal, and while I don't often go into graphic detail, I feel that this time it is necessary to share this to give you a look into how this crime became so infamous for its brutality, as well as because of who the perpetrators were. I will remind you when we approach that portion of this episode, in case you want to skip ahead a minute or two. This is the case of the murder of Bobby Kent. Veronica and Martin Puccio lived in the Hollywood Hills section of Hollywood, Florida in the early 1970s. It was the perfect neighborhood to raise their three sons, they thought. It was just blocks from Hollywood Hills Elementary School where the boys would attend, and there was a Catholic church close by where they would worship and become active in the church community. Martin worked for a film production company that was based in Miami, just a few miles south of their home. It provided studio facilities to filmmakers for post-production work. Veronica worked part-time as a receptionist in a doctor's office, but her main role was caring for her expanding family. Three boys kept her busy with their school and church activities, as well as shuttling them to various sports activities. They were the typical American family, and Martin and Veronica made sure their children were raised with rules and discipline, but always in a loving and supportive way that encouraged their children to pursue their dreams and goals. Their middle child was named after his father, Martin, although he was always called Marty by both family and friends. When Marty was in the third grade, a new family moved on to their block. Fred and Farrah Kent, originally from Iran, had two children, a boy named Robert, called Bobby, and a daughter named Layla. Fred Kent was a successful stockbroker, and he and Farrah were now also living a typical American middle-class life. Their children were encouraged to do well in school and provided with extras like piano lessons and karate instruction. The Kent family stressed values like responsibility, hard work, education, and respect for authority and elders. They expected their children to heed these values and required Bobby to address adults as sir and ma'am, something he always did. Bobby and Marty met as third graders and became fast friends. They were two typical suburban boys who enjoyed riding bikes together, skateboarding, and playing ball. They ran around together in the neighborhood and were so inseparable that neighbors began referring to them as the Siamese twins, although they were very different in appearance. Bobby had dark hair and eyes and a swarthy complexion, while Marty had sandy brown hair and lighter eyes. As they grew up, Marty stayed thin and wiry, while Bobby grew to be bigger and stockier. Neither of them were very tall. Both just reached an average height, but Bobby seemed bigger due to his more muscular frame. Perhaps because of his build, or perhaps just because it was what he believed to be more manly, Bobby began to put on a more macho attitude as he reached puberty. He was louder, more aggressive, and more rough in his speech. Marty stayed more like a little kid longer than his buddy. Marty liked to play superhero and dress in capes and costumes. He quit doing so after his friend told him that he was acting queer. Bobby also liked to assert himself or just make his point by using his fists. He would do this most of all with his best friend Marty. If he didn't like what Marty did or said, 
He would punch him out to make sure Marty stopped whatever it was that offended him. At first, the fights were typical of many little boys' interactions. They would argue or get angry, have a scuffle, and then dust themselves off and forget the whole matter, no one being much the worse for wear. But then, Bobby began growing and became much heavier and stronger than Marty. The fights became more one-sided, with Marty getting knocked down the most. As two young boys living within a stone's throw of miles of beautiful beaches, their skateboarding hobby naturally moved to a desire to ride a surfboard. Both boys took to surfing as young teens. However, Marty, everyone agreed, was a natural. He was lighter and more flexible on the board, and also seemed to have fallen in love with the sport. He spent every spare moment he could hanging out on the beach, riding the waves for hours on end. By the seventh grade, he was an accomplished surfer. He gained respect with much more mature surfers and began to spend more time with them. Bobby was heavier and not as graceful on a surfboard. He wasn't welcomed into the group of surfers that Marty hung with. This began to make him angry and jealous, and he took it out on Marty. He was bossy and even demeaning towards his friend. He told Marty in front of his surfing buddies to go and get him something to eat. Marty asked him for money, to which Bobby responded that he should pay for it himself. Marty refused, and in view of everyone, Bobby hauled off and punched him in the face, causing blood to pour out of his nose. The older guys moved as if to step in, but Marty said he was okay and waved them away. Later, one of the guys would ask him why he put up with this abuse from his so-called friend. Marty agreed that it wasn't okay, but said he and Bobby had been friends since they were little kids. Marty seemed to believe that, as his best friend, he just had to put up with it. Afterwards, Bobby would apologize to Marty, saying that he was his best friend, and he knew that he loved him, right? Marty would forgive him each time. When reading these interactions between the two boys, and how it became a pattern with them, I was struck how it so closely follows intimate partner violence, or what is also known as domestic violence. I'm not saying that the boys were romantic partners. By all accounts, they were not. But as best friends, since they were little kids, like Marty said, they had a very close relationship. As happens in some relationships, one party plays the dominant role and makes the other person subservient in order to assert control. This is done by tearing a person first down emotionally and then making them feel less than in some way. Bobby did this by making fun of his friend for his childish behavior and by calling him queer and other names he thought would embarrass him. When the verbal bullying didn't work, he would resort to physical threats and then actual violence to assert his control over Marty. Afterwards, he would apologize and profess love and loyalty to him in order to gain his forgiveness and keep the friendship intact. This closely follows the cycle of violence we learn about between intimate partners. There is a buildup of stress where threats and intimidation occur. Then the abusive partner acts out in anger and physically abuses the other person. Afterwards, there is what is called the honeymoon period where the abusive partner professes their love and acts in loving ways towards the abused partner until they are forgiven. Then the tension and stress begins to build up again, with the pattern or cycle beginning all over again, ultimately leading to another attack. How early the abuse from his friend began is not known, but what is known is that it continued to escalate over time. But by the eighth grade, the parents decided that the boys should attend separate schools. Marty's father was proud of his son and encouraged him to surfboard competitively. He knew Marty was sometimes pressured by Bobby to hang out with him playing video games instead of spending so much time at the beach with the surfers. He felt Bobby might hold his son back in his pursuits. But Bobby's father thought Marty wasn't the greatest influence on his son. 
He saw his skateboarding and then surfing as useless pastimes that would not help him become gainfully employed or get ahead in life. Bobby was the more serious student, something that was highly stressed by his parents. Mr. Kent urged Bobby to do well in school so that someday he could own his own business and become financially successful. He felt all the time at the beach was a waste and encouraged Bobby to make friends who were more academically focused. So the Kents were glad to hear that Marty was being transferred to another middle school in nearby Davie to begin eighth grade. While they remained friends, they saw each other much less frequently. Marty's parents said he seemed less stressed since beginning eighth grade and having some distance from Bobby. Bobby's parents saw an improvement in his grades, and he seemed more focused. However, there was a problem when Marty was ready to begin high school the following year. The high school in Davie did not begin their school day until 10 a.m., and classes ended between 3.30 and 4 p.m. South Broward High School, the school near to his house and where Bobby attended, had a typical school schedule of beginning at 8 a.m. and ending the school day around 2. The best ways to practice surfing happened before 4 p.m. In order to have time to get in enough practice, Marty instead enrolled at South Broward High. Bobby, however, was now the big man on campus, literally and figuratively, while Marty found himself cast into the shadows. Bobby had turned into a good-looking young man and had built up his physique by lifting weights. He was also a good student and popular, especially with the girls. Marty, having gone to school in a different community for the last year, was now a bit of an outsider. This was exacerbated by the fact that once classes ended, he was off to the beach to surf. He didn't participate in any school activities or have time to hang out with his classmates. But Bobby was thrilled to have his little buddy back. He took him under his wing, and they became best friends again. Bobby now was clearly the one in charge, even more so than before. They introduced each other to their worst habits. Bobby was eager to share with Marty his latest obsession, pornography. The type of pornography Bobby preferred was graphic and violent in nature. Marty was repulsed by some of the pictures and videos Bobby showed him. Some of it was not only graphic, but brutal. The sex acts seemed cruel, and even coerced or forced, as if they were watching an actual rape. And some of the participants seemed to be decidedly underage to Marty. They looked like young children forced into demeaning sexual situations, and he didn't want to watch. When he would refuse or try and walk away, Bobby would forcefully grab him by the hair, sometimes sitting or kneeling on his back, and force him to watch. Bobby showed him videos of both heterosexual and homosexual sex. Bobby acted as if it was funny to see these, quote, disgusting homos engage in sex, but it was a regular part of their pornographic viewing. Marty, while growing up around a group of surfers who often indulged, had acquired a regular marijuana habit, which he now introduced to Bobby as well. Marty received a regular allowance from his parents, so he had the funds available to keep them both supplied with weed. Bobby had begun working out at the YMCA regularly and pumping iron. He bulked up and now had a large chest and neck and muscular arms and legs. Marty, who'd always had a small frame and thin arms and legs, began working out with Bobby up to two hours a day. This did three things. It gave him the big muscles he always wanted, but it also took time away from surfing. His ability to surf began to suffer due to decreased practice time and also because the bigger muscles and bulkier limbs now made him slower and less graceful on the board. While before, Marty had always been the boy wonder in surfing circles and was once poised to surf competitively and perhaps even score lucrative sponsorships, he now began to be seen less frequently on the beach. 
Soon, he dropped surfing altogether. Instead, he spent all of his time at the gym. Bobby had begun to train him and push him harder and harder to lift more weights and for longer amounts of time. Bobby, by this time, was huge. He was short and full of muscles, practically from head to toe, looking like a large block or a wall of muscle. He also introduced Marty to his secret weapon, steroids. Soon, both were juicing. By the 11th grade, Marty and Bobby were spending almost all of their time together, pumping iron, taking steroids, and viewing pornography. Bobby also had a couple of other hobbies, hand washing. He'd become a compulsive hand washer, sometimes washing them up to 100 times per day, and scoring with chicks. Girls thought he was good-looking and had a good body, but his foul and demeaning language, bullying personality, and interest in sex only if it was rough and humiliating didn't keep them around for long. Bobby didn't care. He just moved on to the next girl. He also became angrier and more aggressive, most likely as a result of his steroid use. He had a hair-trigger temper and could flip out for very little reason. His temper, along with his size, made him scary to be around. Marty began to get regularly beat up by his friend for any number of reasons. Once, he had Marty drive his car, a Camaro he had recently purchased, and Marty had to swerve to avoid a bus on a clogged roadway. The car's tire bumped the curb, and Bobby flew into a rage, punching Marty in the face while he was still driving, and almost causing him to wreck. Marty came home more than a few times with cuts and bruises to his face, including a black eye. His parents would ask him what happened, but he refused to say. He was embarrassed for his father especially to know that he'd been beaten up by his best friend. A few times, when he couldn't take the abuse anymore, he pleaded with his parents for the family to move away. Can't we just move out of this dump neighborhood, he'd beg. But when they asked him what was wrong, he would simply storm off into his room, dropping the matter, and they did not question him further. It seems that since he could not get away from Bobby's violent nature, he decided to join him. Bobby and Marty began cruelly picking on special needs students at their school. Sometimes they would taunt one of the students in front of the other classmates until they became angry, and then they would hit or punch them to make them cry. Other times, they would ask an unsuspecting victim if they'd like to throw a football around with them. When the student agreed, they would take turns chucking the ball with force at their head. As it bounced off the dazed victim, the other would catch it, and it would be his turn to assault the student. They both seemed to delight in these cruel and sadistic games, doubling over with laughter at the pain they inflicted. The steroid abuse was beginning to change their behavior even more. They were more violent, more angry, more aggressive, and Marty seemed to be the most out of control. When he'd bust out in anger or took pleasure in these cruel games, his eyes would bug out and he'd bellow loudly, not caring who was around. As a result, he was caught and suspended several times. As they saw his grades drop and his moods change, Marty's parents began to try and question him about what the problem was. He didn't answer, but simply stepped up his campaign to get away from the neighborhood. Sometimes he'd be hysterical, but he still wouldn't specifically cite the problem. Unable to help him, they finally agreed to allow him to move away to live with his aunt in upstate New York. He was to stay with her until he finished high school. However, four months later, Bobby begged to come home, saying he missed his family. Shortly after returning, he dropped out of high school, even before completing his junior year. Marty sat at home waiting for Bobby to get out of school each day. They would then go to the Y together to lift weights. Fred Kent now saw his perception of his son's best friend become a reality. He had always thought Marty was a loser, hanging out and surfing all day, 
and now he was a dropout and doing absolutely nothing. He wasn't happy either that Bobby spent so many hours at the gym working out. He saw this as a frivolous waste of time. He threatened to move the whole family away from the area altogether. Bobby pleaded with him not to put the house on the market. He promised to stay away from Marty. Fred Kent agreed, but he required Bobby to get an after-school job. He found one quickly, working at the deli counter at the public supermarket in nearby Dania. His promise to his dad forgotten, or never intended to be carried out, Bobby urged Marty to apply at the deli counter, and he was soon hired to work alongside him. Instead of things getting better, their behavior became worse. They targeted an elderly, mentally retarded man who shopped at the store. As he was carrying his groceries through the parking lot, they went and retrieved a football from Bobby's car and began hitting him in the head with it, just like they had with the special needs students. But this time, they did it on a main street in full view of passing cars. One of the cars that passed contained a former surfing buddy of Marty's. He recognized Marty, but he didn't seem remotely like the nice young boy who was such a gifted surfer. This guy was some kind of overly muscled monster. However, no one called the police. They began to feel confident after building so much muscle and decided they needed to have stylish and trendy clothes and designer sunglasses and athletic shoes to show off their bodies. They didn't have enough money for all the pricey items, so they began breaking into cars to steal from them. They were arrested in 1992 for prowling. Cops had been on the lookout for whoever had been shattering car windows and stealing things of value from an area near a retirement community in Hollywood. They were caught with burglary tools as well as marijuana. Because they were minors, they were released to their parents without penalty. However, they were required to seek family counseling. Martin and Veronica Puccio began attending a Tough Love parent support group. This program stressed making the wayward child responsible for his or her own actions without coddling them. They decided that Marty had to earn his own money for groceries. They would not provide food for him. If he didn't work, he didn't eat. Now Bobby came up with a potential money-making scheme. Marty's father was in the film production industry and would often share with Marty stories about the work he did. Bobby thought they could start making their own films, pornographic films. For some reason, he decided they would produce films starring gay men. But first, Bobby said, they had to go undercover to gay bars and clubs. They would pretend to be a couple so they could scout for talent. One of the gay clubs they visited had an amateur strip show, and Bobby pressured Marty to perform. He balked at first, but they convinced each other it would be good for research, as well as a funny joke, so Marty agreed. It didn't take long of performing in front of the admiring men that Marty began to enjoy the attention. But once Bobby saw that Marty was actually enjoying the experience, he became outraged. Some of the worst beatings Marty received from Bobby were times he felt Marty was enjoying acting gay. They finally found a suitable candidate as a star of their film. They met an older gay man named Harry Souter, and together they flirted with him and made him believe they were interested in having a relationship with him. Souter, flattered by the attention of the much younger, buffed-out dudes, was game. They began to visit him at his home. Marty would flirt with him and keep him occupied, while Bobby cased the house and sometimes stole items before they left. Souter finally figured out what was happening and confronted Bobby. He exploded in a rage and viciously punched Souter in the face. However, he continued to associate with the boys and was beaten by Bobby a few more times before he called the police. However, at the last minute, he declined to press charges. Even though they stole from him, Souter didn't have much. When Bobby told him they wanted him to work with them to produce a porno, 
that they would distribute and give him a cut of the money, he agreed. He was also excited that he would finally get the green light to get physical with Marty, or so he thought. They had come up with the title for the film, Rough Boys, but no script, no story, no plot, and no other actors. They simply placed Suter alone in front of a handheld camera with a few sex toys, played reggae music from a boombox somewhere off camera, and called action. The result was the most amateur, ludicrous porno ever committed to celluloid. Suter sat alone in front of the camera while Bobby yelled out stage directions off screen, which toy to use and what to do to himself with it. At times, Suter seemed either horrified or disgusted by the directions he was given, but seemed to be too fearful, which he probably was, not to comply. The audio quality was terrible, as was the non-existent camera work. At times, you could hear Marty and or Bobby laughing hoarsely at what they were making their actor do, and at other times, commenting about how gross it looked. Naturally, the big payday the boys thought they would receive by peddling their film never arrived. They actually did show it to several sex shop workers and X-rated video stores, but not surprisingly, no one was interested in Rough Boys. The only result of this fiasco was that Bobby wanted to make damn sure that Marty didn't turn gay on him and began to hook him up with female sex partners, something Bobby never had trouble with himself. It was because of this that Bobby Kent and Marty Puccio were introduced to Lisa Connolly and Alice Willis. Marty Puccio was drifting. He'd already dropped out of high school, was working part-time at a deli counter, had quit his goal of becoming a competitive surfer, and had made one very poor attempt at becoming a porn film producer. In contrast, Bobby Kent was still in school and making decent grades, had saved up enough from his part-time job to purchase a used Camaro, and was on track to graduate and enroll in South Broward Community College to study to become a physical therapist. Bobby saw this as a way to earn a living, as well as continue to work on bodybuilding, as he planned to seek a position working with clients in a gym. Bobby was clearly the one succeeding in life in their little band of two, while Marty came off as the loser who needed to be helped by his friend. Bobby became more controlling and even began deciding which girls Marty could meet and date. Bobby's dates were always good-looking girls with slim figures. For Marty, he tended to pick the girls who he deemed less attractive and also who were fuller-figured. Lisa Connolly knew that she was the plain girl when compared to her best friend, Alice Willis. Alice, or Ellie, was a petite blonde who turned heads wherever she went. This gave her a bold confidence with guys, something Lisa had never known. She felt big and awkward and shy, and daydreamed constantly about finally having a boyfriend of her own. And she didn't want any boyfriend. Lisa cut out pictures of good-looking buffed guys to put on the walls of her bedroom. This was her fantasy, a gorgeous hunk who only had eyes for her. But as of the age of 18, which she now was in the winter of 1992, she still had not had that boyfriend. Allie, at age 17, had had many boyfriends and now decided to help her friend, who was desperate for one, to meet someone. But first, they needed to go shopping. It helped that Allie's parents gave her almost unlimited access to cash and credit cards. Allie was going to buy her friend a bathing suit to show off her curves. She took her to a shop located just behind the public's market in Dania, and they tried on suit after suit until Lisa found one that, to her surprise, made her look sexy. Afterwards, they were hungry, and they walked into the market to order a sandwich for lunch. Working behind the counter that day was Marty and Bobby, 
both aged 19. Allie looked at the guys and thought they were both gorgeous and was turned on by their oversized muscles. She began to flirt with them. Lisa, intimidated by the hunky guys, hung back. To Bobby, they were the perfect pair for him and Marty. Allie was the gorgeous blonde with the great body, and Lisa was a plain Jane who was slightly chubby. Bobby told the girls to meet them in three hours when they got off work at North Beach Park in Hollywood. You'll be my date, he told Allie. My friend here is into full-figured gals. Marty shot him an angry look. Whatever, Allie replied. Maybe. She and Lisa rode around and shopped for the next three hours. Allie owned a bright red Mustang 5.0 with T-tops. At the appointed time, they drove to North Beach. Allie had encouraged Lisa to put on her new swimsuit. When the boys showed up, they played it cool barely greeting the girls. But they made a big show of parading around shirtless and then taking their surfboards from the roof of Bobby's car. They then surfed for a bit, knowing the girls would be watching and admiring their buffed bodies. After a while, Marty came back to shore and walked straight towards Lisa. He flashed her a big smile and asked her if they wanted a party. She could hardly speak, but finally said yes. She couldn't believe this beautiful boy was looking at her. They all changed back into street clothes before piling into Bobby's Camaro. They smoked marijuana, and then Bobby ordered Marty to go to the liquor store and buy some booze. The girls noticed right away how bossy and bullying Bobby was to his friend. Marty just laughed it off. Your guy is sweet, Allie told Lisa. The big one is an asshole. They parked and began to drink and get high. Bobby cranked up his stereo and told Allie to get in the front of the car with him. She wasn't sure she liked his personality, but he was gorgeous, and she wanted Lisa to have time alone with Marty, so she got in the front seat. Bobby immediately grabbed her by her hair and, laughing, forced her head down towards his crotch. Knock it off, asshole, she told him. But then she began to make out with him. She had no problem having sex with him, but it would be on her terms. In the back seat, Marty began to put his hands on Lisa and kissed her. She couldn't believe that he wanted her. When he began to try and have sex with her, there was no way she was going to refuse. This was her dream come true. Lisa was being raised alone by her mother, Maureen Connolly. When Lisa was still a little girl, her father left them. Feeling sorry for her fatherless daughter, Maureen worked hard to give Lisa everything she wanted. Lisa could become sullen and sometimes became tearful and angry when she didn't get her way. Never wanting to see her sad, Maureen often gave in to her daughter's demands. They weren't much really, she thought, and she knew how lonely she was, so when Lisa told her she had a boyfriend who was a hunk, she was hopeful. She saw Lisa perk up. She was so happy, and she saw a light in her eyes that she hadn't seen in a long time. Lisa began spending more and more time with the boy, which she didn't dare deny her. She was grateful to see her looking so happy. Lisa had met Allie when they were just five years old and in Catholic school. Allie's mother and father also divorced, and Allie responded by becoming wild and willful. By the time she was 12, she began having sex with multiple partners. She got angry with her mother when she was 14 and ran away. She and a girlfriend met up with two older guys, aged 18 and 19. Her mother had refused to allow her to see the older guy. Now she called him and he met the girls with another friend. Both men were gang members. Instead of taking them to a party like Allie thought, they pulled over along the side of a lonely road and, hidden from view, took turns raping the girls repeatedly. Afterwards, they were driving the girls towards the sea and who knows what would have happened to them if they had not needed to stop for gas. 
a customer at the gas station saw the terrified and battered-looking girls looking at them pleadingly from the back seat of a car driven by two rough-looking characters. They called the police. The girls were rescued, and the men were arrested and eventually imprisoned for sexual battery, armed kidnapping, and assault and robbery. Allie, suffering from PTSD from the rape and kidnapping, began to spin out of control. Her mother was now remarried to a man named Albert, and together they ran a successful electrical contracting business. They were well off financially and sent Allie to a good therapist, but the therapist was not told about the rape. Allie didn't talk about it either. Instead, she began to affect a tough attitude and became even more sexually promiscuous. Two years after the rape, her stepfather sold his business and they moved from Broward County, 150 miles north, to Palm Bay, located near Cape Canaveral. They thought getting Allie away from the bad memories and from the fast crowd she ran with would help her. Instead, she kept returning to Broward County and to her old stomping grounds. She had a new car, seemingly unlimited funds, and liked to treat her friends to shopping sprees, drugs, and booze. She even hired stretch limousines on her mother's credit card for her friends to party in. Her mother always paid the bill. In early 1993, Allie was once again back in Fort Lauderdale, looking for a place to crash. None of her friends' parents were willing to house her anymore. She wasn't a good influence, they thought. A girl she knew told her to reach out to her friend, Tom Hildebrand. He was cool, she said. He'd hook her up. Well, yes, he would, in a manner of speaking. Tom Hildebrand was a pimp who supplied often underage girls to Johns in Broward County. Allie was a real find, he thought. She was attractive and sexy and not at all shy about sharing her body, especially if she could make some money doing it. She was soon being sent out to clients. In other words, turning tricks for Hildebrand. She could look younger than her 17 years, and Tom sometimes told customers that she was only 14 years old. Oh, ick. Allie had dropped out of high school, and at about the same time she began working for Hildebrand, her mother talked her into enrolling in a Christian academy to complete her high school credits. There she met Michael Willis. When she became pregnant, she married him and gave birth to a daughter. Allie and Michael got divorced after only a few months. She left the baby in the care of her mother and continued to travel to the Fort Lauderdale area to hang out with friends and turn tricks for Hildebrand. Lisa, who now also had a car, a firebird her mother had bought her, drove around and hung out with Allie and her friends until she totaled it. Her mother did not have money to replace it, so that was the end of her cruising days. She missed so many days when she had the car that she was suspended. At that time, she decided to drop out. She took a job at a dry cleaner's for minimum wage, deciding, I suppose, that an 11th grade education was enough. Besides, now Marty became her whole world. She even brought him home to meet her mother. Maureen was genuinely surprised at how good-looking the boy was. However, he didn't have much of a personality. He seemed sullen and almost rude in his silence. But Lisa was in love. She even purchased a pager so that Marty could reach her at any time. Her mother, of course, paid for it. About a month into the relationship, Maureen discovered her daughter with bruises and swelling on her face. Lisa was on the phone with Marty at the time. Maureen grabbed the phone from her and demanded to know if he had hit her. At first, there was no answer. When she continued to demand an answer, he finally said, The only thing I can say to you, lady, is you're a pig and so is your daughter. Maureen hung up on him and tried to talk sense into Lisa, but she insisted that she loved him. Right after, she left the house to go and stay with Marty while his parents were away. He wants me, Ma, she screamed at her before leaving. For Lisa, there was nothing else that mattered besides Marty. 
she quit her job and devoted all her time to him. When Lisa got to the Puccio's house, she didn't get to have a week-long romantic interlude like she imagined. For starters, Bobby was there, and he wanted a party. To go along, Lisa invited a friend over to be Bobby's date. Bobby and Marty seemed to egg each other on when they were together, getting louder, more aggressive, and more crude. Now they insisted the girls watch the porn flick they had produced. It was their first screening of Rough Boys, and while Lisa's friend thought it was disgusting, Lisa barely noticed what was on the screen, so thrilled to be staying with Marty. Lisa's friend wanted to leave, but Bobby forced both girls to stay, basically imprisoning them in the house. He continued to supply them with drugs and alcohol. He then began to play-act homosexual acts with Marty, while they both hooted and hollered and thought they were just performing the most entertaining show on the planet. Then, after about 48 hours of mayhem, Bobby became angry at Marty for leaving the bread out to go stale. He punched him hard in the stomach, doubling him over. He then dragged him into the bedroom. When they emerged, Marty was battered and bleeding from the nose and mouth, his lips swollen. Bobby then told the girls to leave. The party was over. Allie was now back in Palm Bay. She met a girl named Heather Swallers and soon took her under her wing. Heather was a pretty petite 17-year-old with a sad life story. Her whole family history was tragic, starting with the death of her grandmother. She had been married to a vicious drunk who beat and raped her whenever he felt like it. He didn't only limit his assaults to his wife. Whoever he could grab and lock in his room would be raped and beaten as well. In 1970, in a rage, he took a claw hammer and bashed his wife's face in, killing her. For the next 48 hours, he continued to drink, locked in the bedroom with his dead wife's body. He also continued to have sex with the corpse. The murder was discovered, and he was imprisoned. The crime and his trial were front-page news in Indiana where the murder took place. Heather's mother was 15 at the time of her mother's murder and had been in the house during the entire horrific ordeal. She became a heavy drinker like her father. His name was Jack, and she began to go by the name Jackie, obsessed with his memory. She had many men in her life, but finally stayed with one who was an abusive alcoholic like her father. Heather and then her brother Shane had been born to Jackie and were dragged from place to place with her, never having a stable home. They saw their mother being abused, passed out drunk, and taking drugs. When she was alone and sufficiently drunk, she would require the children to sit silently while she read the most gruesome details out loud to them from her father's trial. Heather was never one place long enough to make any friends, and she was also living in poverty. She'd continued the cycle of drugs, booze, and casual sex, but it wasn't a party for her. It was just an escape from the misery that was her life. Then she met Allie Willis in the mall. They struck up a conversation, and there was something about her that Allie liked. They became friends right away. Two days later, Allie borrowed her mother's credit card, picked up her friend, and took her on a shopping spree for a whole new wardrobe. She spent over $500 on her new friend, more money than Allie had ever known in her entire life. After that, she thought Allie was the greatest person who ever lived, and she would do anything for her. Not that she really had anything to give, except her loyalty. Allie then took Heather home with her. Heather had never lived in such beautiful and luxurious surroundings. Allie had everything anybody could ever want or need, and now she wanted to share it with her. Without running it by her parents, it became clear that Heather would be living with them for a while. Allie also had a new boyfriend named Donnie Semenik, a 17-year-old high school dropout. Donnie was not bright, 
missed a lot of school, and had so many D's and F's on his report card that he was finally unofficially diagnosed with either mild retardation or a learning disability and sent to a special needs class. Instead, he dropped out to drink and do drugs and probably dropped his IQ points even lower. He was happy and positive, though, almost goofily so. His parents tried to get Donnie to focus and follow the rules, but he was not amenable to following any structure. He was happy just to hang out. Allie was happy to have him hang out with her. He was cute in a punk-like sort of way. I can only describe him as a young Mark Wahlberg type. She began treating him to new clothes and expensive sunglasses and designer sneakers. They also shared lots of drugs and booze. This was the life, Donnie thought. In late June 1993, Heather realized she had a drug problem. She had begun using crack and was now addicted. She reached out to her mother, who had plenty of knowledge about that subject, and managed to get her admitted to a rehab facility in Melbourne, Florida. Perhaps the one good thing she'd ever done for her daughter. Heather had only been admitted three days when Allie called her up and told her she was coming to pick her up. It had been five months since she'd had her one-night stand with Bobby, and now Lisa called her wanting her to come and visit. Bobby wanted to see her again. Allie wanted Heather to go with her. It would be a fun trip, she promised. Heather was not about to tell Ellie no. She worshipped her and would do anything for her. Cool, she said. I'll be waiting. Lisa had a reason besides wanting to party to have Allie come and visit. In the five months that she and Marty had been together, Marty had become increasingly abusive to her. With Bobby egging him on, he began to find new ways to taunt and humiliate her. It started out with Marty pushing her around in front of her friends, calling her fat ass and shamu as Bobby roared with laughter. The abuse had escalated to the point where Marty had made her strip naked, and then he and Bobby took turns beating her with a belt and then having sex with her. Lisa would do anything Marty asked not to lose him. But Lisa had decided that this abuse was all Bobby's fault. She believed Marty genuinely loved her and would be sweet to her if only he didn't feel the need to go along with his bullying friend. She saw how Bobby treated him, flying into a rage and beating him up. It was clear to Lisa that Marty only did those things because he was afraid of the abuse Bobby would inflict upon him if he didn't. At least, this is what she believed, or wanted to believe, about her boyfriend. She needed to be alone with Marty so they could have the relationship she dreamed of, just the two of them. But Bobby was always around. So she called Allie to come and take Bobby off their hands. Allie was just Bobby's type, beautiful and sexy. She was also strong-willed and confident, and Lisa thought she could handle him. She needed her to begin dating him so that he would be preoccupied and finally leave Marty alone. Allie left her boyfriend Donnie with her parents, picked up Heather on the way, and drove south to party with Lisa and her boyfriend and hook up with Bobby. They arrived at Lisa's house and spent the night. The next day, Allie left Heather at Lisa's house napping and watching TV and went with Marty and Lisa to Bobby's house. He'd just gotten home from school and his parents were set to arrive home in less than an hour. Bobby and Allie had a conversation while Marty and Lisa retreated to another room. Allie told him all about her failed marriage and her daughter and Bobby shared that he was planning to go to college. He had almost completed enough credits to graduate from high school. She was impressed. Bobby told her that his father wanted him to go into business and since he liked cars and was mechanically inclined, they had talked of opening a car stereo installation and window tinting shop that Bobby would own and manage. He was excited about his future. Ellie thought maybe he wasn't such an arrogant asshole after all. 
Maybe he was really a nice, decent guy she might like. Allie returned the next day when Bobby's parents were out. The plan was to hook up and have sex. Wow, so much for dating and getting to know a person. I guess I'm just square. They went into his room and got undressed, and as they got into bed, he turned on a video. Allie saw it was two men engaging in anal sex. Oh, gross, she said. I don't want to see that. He told her to stop being uptight and then forced her to watch, using his old trick of holding a person down and forcing them. When she called him an asshole, he flipped her over and forced sex on her. When she was able to leave the room, Lisa came out and asked her how it went. That asshole raped me, she said. Well, Lisa said, I told you he liked kinky sex. I thought you were into that. But this didn't make Ellie leave right away, surprisingly. She stuck around until Bobby's mother came home and greeted them all and made them snacks. Everyone, including Bobby, acted like normal teenagers who were just hanging out watching television. Some would later describe Bobby as Eddie Haskell. Eddie Haskell was a character on a 1950s-era American television show who was ultra-polite when in the company of adults, but a real sleaze when with friends or other kids his age. The next day, Allie was gone. She and Heather hightailed it back to Palm Bay. Lisa's plan to get her and Bobby together had failed miserably. She had to find another way to get rid of Bobby. And now the stakes were even higher. Lisa had just discovered that she was pregnant. Marty picked up Lisa and they drove out to the beach. She sat on the beach in her swimsuit and cover-up and watched him surf for a while, thinking. When he came out of the ocean and sat with her, she began to ask him about Bobby. Don't you think he's weird, she asked, like psycho? Marty said, yeah, he was a little weird. She then began to ask why he let his friend treat him so badly, bully him, and beat him up. Marty answered that they'd been friends since they were little kids, and he'd always just beat the shit out of me whenever he wanted to. He couldn't stop him. She told him he should move away, and he said he'd tried, but didn't want to leave his family. Besides, he didn't even have a high school diploma. What was he supposed to do? So, like, there's no way to stop him ever? Lisa asked, frustrated. Yeah, there's a way to stop him, kill him, but that's about it, Marty answered. That's what I was thinking, Lisa said. Marty looked at her and kind of scoffed. What are you talking about, Lisa? Lisa then began to tell Marty that they should seriously consider killing Bobby. She laid out all of the reasons why. He was a bully that beat him up and humiliated him. He abused and humiliated her. He dissed everybody. He was mean and cruel. He'd even raped Allie. He was the only problem they all had, and they needed to get rid of him. Then she said that even though he was the worst person they all knew, he was the one that would probably become rich and successful. He'd dragged Marty down, and now he was going to graduate high school, go to college, and become a successful business owner, with the help of his dad. Yeah, I'll probably be delivering pizzas to him in Weston, Marty imagined. Then they began to talk about how they'd kill him. Poison? Hire a hitman? Finally, Marty asked, how can we get a gun? Lisa said her mother had one. Marty began to get excited. Now it became real. Let's kill him, Lisa said, smiling at him. Marty kissed her. Lisa had never been happier. Later that day, Lisa called Allie from her house. There are two versions as to what happened next, so I'll tell you both, since I could not verify which one is correct. News reports, court transcripts, and police records all disagree, but the outcome was the same. Lisa either called Allie and told her the plan to kill Bobby, and Allie laughed, called her a crazy bitch, and agreed to come down and help, or 
Lisa called Allie and told her that Bobby had threatened to go up north to find Allie and kill her and her child unless she agreed to come back and continue seeing him. In both accounts, Allie didn't really believe anything was going to happen, but she was always up for a bit of fun, so she decided to travel back to Hollywood. Allie then enlisted her boyfriend, Donnie. She told him she had some great dope for them, and it would be fun. He was game, but really didn't believe anything was going to happen. Allie was just being weird, and it was all a game. The conversation went something like this. Remember, Donnie wasn't the brightest bulb, especially since he was almost always high. You're going to, like, kill this guy? Donnie asked her, amused. Yeah, Allie answered. But you're not gonna, like, actually kill him, like, in real life. Yeah. No. Yeah. Finally, convinced by the great dope Allie had, he said, Well, yeah, let's go. Donnie stopped off at his brother's place and borrowed a large serrated hunting knife that was in a brown leather sheath. Donnie was turning 18 in a few days and told his brother to let his mom know he'd be back in time for the birthday party she was throwing him. They then drove to the mall in Palm Bay to find Heather. She saw Ellie's car and came running over and jumped in. We're going to go down to Lauderdale and help Lisa kill a guy, she told her. Cool, Heather said, asking no further questions. On Tuesday, June 13, 1993, Lisa and Marty were still trying to decide what would be the best way to murder his best friend. At about 5 p.m., Ellie drove into town with Donnie and Heather. They met with Lisa and Marty at Pizza Hut to go over the plan. Lisa outlined the list of all Bobby's deeds. He just about raped Allie last time, she told the group. Donnie had never heard this before and looked over at his girlfriend, surprised. He's beat the shit out of me and raped me before, Lisa continued. But the worst thing he does is picks on Marty and treats him like a dog or a slave or something. He beats up retarded people and thinks it's funny. So we're going to kill him, she concluded. Now they talked about how to do it. They decided against driving by his house and shooting him in a drive-by. Donnie mentioned his knife and said that they could sneak into his house and stab him while he slept. But Marty said Bobby's dog would alert him. Marty said no, the best way would be to shoot him. Lisa offered that her mother had a twenty-five caliber Beretta she could get a hold of. The gun was not registered, Lisa knew, because neither Florida laws nor Broward County ordinances required that a handgun kept at home be registered. They finally decided on a plan to lure him to a remote location and shoot him. They would do it at night, and Lisa wanted it done right away. The Barons at Weston would be the best location, they determined. There was a new housing development being planned there. Roads had been built, and there were no houses on them yet. It was all the way on the fringes of Fort Lauderdale. It would be deserted, somewhere no one would see them. But how to get him out there? They wanted to use Allie as bait. She would say she wanted to have sex with him. But Marty didn't think that this would get him to go out to Weston. He'd just say they could go to his house, Marty thought. Allie hit upon the idea of offering to let him race her Mustang. She'd say that they were going out there so he could race it and make it spin and spit gravel on the flats along the new canals that were being put in. They agreed that sex and racing her powerful sports car would be enough of a draw to get him to drive out to Weston with them. That night, Marty called Bobby from Lisa's to make plans for the next day. They would meet up the next afternoon to work out at the Y. Marty then told him Ellie was in town and wanted to see him. Ellie then got on the phone and flirted with Bobby. He could drive her Mustang out on the flats, she said. He agreed. They all met Bobby at his house. Once there, Ellie was to get him in the car. Lisa had the gun in her purse and would go with them. 
Allie, wearing a short skirt and a tube top, offered to let Bobby drive. Everybody coming, Bobby asked. Marty said he was too tired and was going to drive Donnie and Heather, who had been introduced as boyfriend and girlfriend, back to Lisa's. Bobby at first didn't want to go without Marty, but Allie talked him into it. Once out at the flats at Weston, Bobby no longer was interested in racing the Mustang. He began putting his hands all over Allie. She had the gun hidden in her back, tucked into her short skirt. She told him to wait and walked away from the car with Lisa. She thrust the gun at her. Lisa had wanted her to get him in a place alone, saying she was going to have sex with him and then shoot him in the head. They could roll his body into the canal, she said, where the gators would eat him. Now Allie, afraid Bobby was going to find the gun on her, told Lisa that she would have to shoot him. She'd lure him away with his back to Lisa, and she'd have to sneak up on him. Lisa got to within four feet of Bobby and pointed the gun at his head. She began shaking violently. She just couldn't do it. She dropped her hand and walked away. Allie finished having oral sex with Bobby and then sullenly walked with him back to the car. They drove back to his house in silence and dropped him off. Bobby didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. Allie and Lisa returned to her house, their mission a failure. Lisa now began to make excuses. She couldn't use her mother's gun, she said. She watched cop shows and knew that the bullets could be traced back to her. They decided to call someone who knew what they were doing. They'd heard about a guy named Derek Kaufman, who was involved with a local street gang, and decided to call him. Derek Kaufman was a 21-year-old high school dropout who lived at home with his parents and was unemployed. He said he was a member of a division of a white street gang by the name of the Davy Boys. The Davy Boys were a real gang, well-known by police in the white middle-class area of Davy, Florida. Derek's gang was made up of boys much younger than he was. All his friends slash homies were 17 and under. The youngest members of this ragtag gang were 10 and 11 years old. What I extrapolate from this was that Derek was a poser and that these unstreetwise, overprivileged white kids from the suburbs pegged him as the most hardcore gangster they knew. He went around saying that he worked as a hitman for the mafia and walked and talked the part that was convincing to suburban youth. Lisa got his phone number from a friend, a girl who'd worked with Allie as a call girl for Tom Hildebrand. The next morning, Lisa called Derek and told him she needed to get a guy named Bobby Kent killed. Really? You just blurted out like you're ordering a pizza? She needed a weapon that couldn't be traced, she explained, and she needed him dead right away. Kaufman said he'd work on it and get back to her. Lisa next called her cousin, 19-year-old Derek Zverko, and told him she would send Allie over to pick him up because she might need his help with something big later that day. He spent the rest of the day playing Mortal Kombat at the mall comic book store with Donnie and dropping acid. Meanwhile, Marty and Bobby had had lunch at Pizza Hut. They then went to the Y together to lift weights. Finally, they went to the public's market to work a short shift at the deli. Lisa waited for Derek Kaufman's call. When he didn't call by the afternoon, she went to find her friend, who gave her his number, to see if she knew where he lived. On the way, she saw a friend named Susan, who'd met Bobby before. In passing, she told her that she and her friends were planning to murder him. Susan was shocked by Lisa's excited conversation about planning to murder her boyfriend's friend, but didn't really believe she was serious. Next, Lisa found the girl who knew Kaufman. She also told her about the planned murder and said she needed to get a hold of him. She finally reached him that afternoon, and they all went to meet up. 
he gave them some advice about how to plan the murder better so they wouldn't be detected. He later told them that he was unable to get a gun. They still believed him when he said he was a mafia hitman, and he told them that since it wasn't a sanctioned hit, the mafia didn't want to get involved, so they would not supply him with a weapon. They ultimately decided not to use a gun, but to get some other weapons. They dropped Marty off at home, where he called Bobby and told him they were all going out to Weston again that night. Allie wanted to see him again, he said, and they were all going out to race cars. He urged Bobby to come along. He agreed. They had the hunting knife that Donnie had supplied. Marty was in possession of a diver's knife and a lead pipe. Lisa asked her cousin Derek to bring a baseball bat. He borrowed an aluminum bat from a friend. They met at Marty's house, where Marty was going to drive his car with Lisa, Derek Kaufman, and Derek Zverko. Kaufman wanted to know for sure if they just wanted him beat up or actually killed. Marty said he wanted him dead. Allie's car held Heather, Donnie, and herself, and Marty followed behind in his mother's car. They stopped at Bobby's house to pick him up. He'd eaten dinner with his parents and taken a shower. His mother asked him where he was off to, and he said out with his friend. She knew that to mean Marty. His father had found it earlier in the day from Bobby that Allie was back and he was seeing her. Mr. Kent didn't approve of Allie for his son. He thought she was trash. She looked like trash and talked like trash, and he didn't like her. But he knew he couldn't forbid his son from seeing her. Still, he was disappointed. When Marty pulled up and honked for Bobby, he was surprised to see so many people. He thought it was just going to be him and Allie and Marty and Lisa. Who were all these dudes? Just friends of Allie's and Heather's, he said. It would be fun. They were going to race his mother's Mercury Topaz against Allie's Mustang. Bobby scoffed. That's no contest. What the hell? Marty persuaded him, saying it would be fun, and he was sure that Allie wanted to get him alone to have sex. He finally relented. He went over to Allie's car and ordered Heather into the back seat. He then told Allie he was going to drive her piece of shit. She smiled at him and moved into the passenger seat. He took off peeling out in Allie's car. What an asshole, Derek Kaufman said, as they followed behind in the second car. I told you, Lisa said. We need to kill that fucker. Marty nodded in agreement. On the way out to the flats, the group in Allie's car smoked some weed. In Marty's car, Derek Kaufman was still asking whether they actually wanted to kill Bobby or just beat him up. He asked Verko. Verko said he didn't know, but he thought they wanted him dead. Kaufman then told Lisa they needed a plan and a signal. Lisa said Allie was going to lead him off somewhere, and then the rest would sneak up on him. What would be the signal, Kaufman asked. They were still mulling that over as they arrived and parked. It was just before midnight. They pulled both cars up to a broad shoulder of a road that sloped down for about 15 to 20 yards before it reached the banks of a canal. There were large mounds of dredge that had been pulled to form the canal that were about 30 to 50 feet high. The area behind the mounds could not be seen even if someone did happen to drive down the deserted road that went nowhere. They parked and Bobby emerged from the Mustang. Allie followed him and began rubbing her body suggestively against him. Let's take a walk, he said. She smiled suggestively at him and led him down the bank towards the canal. As soon as they left, the rest of the group gathered around Kaufman for the plan. Lisa got the baseball bat out of the trunk and handed it to Kaufman. Marty took out his diving knife, and they asked Donnie about his weapon. He reached behind his back and pulled out the sheathed hunting knife he had borrowed and showed it to them with a big grin. Lisa began to grow impatient. 
All night, she seemed on the verge of hysteria. Every time she talked about killing Bobby, her voice grew louder and her eyes looked wild. No one had ever seen her so excited. Now she turned to Kaufman and hissed, I want this fucker dead now. Kaufman laid out the plan. They needed a signal to know when was the best time to attack. They would send Heather down, and if the situation was right, she was to ask loud enough for them to hear if there were alligators in the canal. When they heard that, they would know it was time to move on Bobby. Donnie would be the closest since he was pretending to be Heather's boyfriend. He would go down with her. When she gave the signal, he was to be the first to attack. Then Marty would back him up to finish the job. Derek and Zverko were to wait up on the top of the slope to stop him if somehow he broke away. They would be the backup. Heather started down the slope with Donnie, but he stopped halfway down and let her go alone. She saw Ellie and Bobby with their back to her looking at the water. As she approached them in the dark, she asked softly, Are there alligators in there? Allie, of course, didn't know it was the signal. What? Bobby asked. Heather turned her back towards Donnie, waiting on the slope, and said louder, I asked if there were alligators in there. Bobby replied, Why don't you go skinny dipping and see? The next thing I will describe is the attack on Bobby. It's pretty brutal and gory. Feel free to skip ahead if you need to. This is your warning. Donnie came running down the slope with the knife raised above his head, arms flailing. Bobby didn't look back towards him. Coming up behind Bobby, he thrust the knife into his neck. It only penetrated about an inch. He yanked it out, falling backwards. He was breathing hard. Bobby wheeled around in surprise, grabbing his neck, and advanced towards Donnie. But he stopped in shock when he saw the blood on his hand. He looked up to see Marty running towards him down the slope. Oh, fuck, Marty, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding, he cried out in shock and anger. Heather, hearing this, ran to Allie's car and threw herself onto the floor of the back seat. She curled up in a fetal position and rocked with her hands over her ears. Bobby turned to Marty and put his hands out towards him, as if asking for help. Marty moved into Bobby with the scuba knife and plunged it into his stomach. He twisted the knife hard and pulled it into an upward motion and then back out, slicing his belly open. Part of his lower intestine began to coil out, having been pulled out with the knife. Bobby began to wail louder. No, help me, Marty, he screamed. Marty, I'm sorry. Whatever I've done, I'm sorry, he begged. Marty drew the knife up again, and Bobby threw up his arm in a defensive motion. The blade caught on his thumb and was deflected, only striking Bobby's right bicep and sinking in two inches. Now Donnie was back up, and began using his knife to stab at Bobby. He hit him twice in the back, but the knife didn't connect seriously either time. Bobby moved away from him, walking slowly, bleeding up the slope. Stunned, Marty and Donnie watched. About halfway up, Bobby broke into a run, still able somehow to move quickly. Derek Kaufman saw him and began shrieking, He's getting away! He's getting away! He and Marty ran after him, meeting in the middle of the slope. Derek running down and Marty up towards Bobby. Kaufman had the baseball bat in his hands. Allie now ran back up to her car and jumped into the driver's seat. It was pitch black. She couldn't see or hear anything now. Derek's Zverko ripped open the passenger door and jumped in, screaming for her to drive away. She turned on the ignition that flipped on the headlights. Bobby lay directly in front of the car on his back, illuminated by the headlights. Kaufman screamed at Marty, Finish him! Marty straddled Bobby with his knees, pinning both of his arms down at his side. 
Bobby had blood spurting from between his lips, but was still pleading with Marty. Please, please, Marty, he implored him. Marty grabbed Bobby by his hair and slammed his head back on the concrete so hard he fractured one of the vertebrae in his neck. He then drew the edge of the knife against Bobby's throat and began sawing back and forth as if to sever his head from his neck. He pushed so hard against the blade it crushed his voice box. He was bleeding profusely from the gaping wound in his neck, but he was still conscious. Lisa stood by the side of the car, watching the whole time. Marty finally lifted himself off of Bobby and brought the knife high up in the air, plunging the knife into his chest and through his heart. It stabbed him so deeply the tip of the knife dimpled the skin on his back. Marty and Kaufman realized Allie's headlights were on them now and began screaming at her to shut them off. At the same time, Zverko, in the passenger seat, was screaming at her to drive away. Then they all heard it and fell silent. Bobby was still alive. A wheezing gurgle came from him. Donnie and Kaufman approached, and they could see that Bobby was somehow not only conscious, but still moving. Kaufman pushed Donnie away and drew the aluminum bat up high over his head. He straddled Bobby's body in a batter stance. He yelled out to Ellie, Turn those goddamn lights off! She finally complied. They then heard the contact of the bat connecting with Bobby's skull. He made a direct hit, almost caving in his face and the side of his head. There were no more sounds coming from Bobby. Kaufman then approached Allie's passenger side door and yanked it open. Get out, he yelled at Zverko. He was terrified and pissed his pants before getting out, trying to keep a distance between him and Kaufman the whole time. You have to help me carry him, he told him. He then instructed Zverko to retrieve Bobby's wallet from his pants pocket. He didn't want any identification found. He had him throw it far into the canal. He then ordered Zverko to grab one arm while he grabbed the other to drag him down to the water. As they began pulling on the body, they heard a wheeze come from it. He was still alive. They both screamed and dropped him. Everyone froze, not knowing what to do. Marty was pacing, frantic now. Finally, Donnie said just to throw him in the canal anyway. He would drown, and that would be that. They lifted him and tried to throw him out far enough to sink him, but he was heavy and slippery with blood. The body landed halfway in the water and half in the sand. They returned to their cars and started them up. Kaufman called to them, saying nobody was going home yet. They had to meet and get their story straight, unless anyone came asking questions. They ended up at South Beach at 1.30 a.m., they first buried the weapons in the sand at the end of a pier. But they realized that the sheath that Donnie's knife had been in had been left behind. They decided that Marty and Kaufman would return with Ellie in her car. They had to retrieve the sheath and cover the tire tracks. They drove back to Weston, almost 30 minutes away, and quickly got the sheath and covered the tracks by scuffing them with their feet. Nobody wanted to look at the body. Back at the beach, Lisa waited with Donnie, Heather, and her cousin Derek. She began to panic. She dug up the weapons, deciding they needed to be thrown into the sea. Zverko was able to stop her from throwing the bat into the surf. He said he needed to return it to the guy he'd borrowed it from, or he'd have to pay for it. It was an almost $300 bat, and he didn't have that kind of money. Marty and Kaufman returned with Allie, and they began to formulate their story. Marty had met Bobby for lunch that day, so he would have been the last one to see him. Marty came up with the story that Bobby had told him at lunch he was going to meet a hillbilly girl he had just met for a hookup that night. Marty would say he was worried because he believed the girl was connected with the Davy Boys, 
If his body was found before the gators ate him, it would be believed that the Davy boys had caught him with one of their women and killed him. That might have worked, except they decided to do something really odd and pretty stupid. Marty would call Bobby's house as soon as he got home and leave a message saying that he was worried about him and to call him. When he got home, it was 3.30 a.m. He called Bobby's house. He was surprised when Fred Kent, Bobby's father, answered. He had just begun to leave a message saying, Bobby, this is Marty Puccio. I called you. You asked me to call you when I got home. Kent said, Hey, Marty. Marty hung up. On Thursday morning, July 15, 1993, Fred Kent had a strange feeling. As soon as he got up, he went to check on Bobby in his room. He was not home. He began to think about the call he got early in the morning. Why would Marty say, this is Marty Puccio? Why would he leave his last name? It didn't make sense. And Bobby said he was going out with his friend. He assumed it was Marty. So why didn't Marty call like he hadn't been with him that night? He decided to work from home. He just had a weird feeling that something wasn't right. A little later that morning, he went over to talk to Marty. Lisa was also there. They said they hadn't seen Bobby. When Fred said he was worried because Bobby hadn't come home, Marty said, I knew it. He then told him the story about the hillbilly girl and the Davy boys. He was then surprised when he told Marty he was going to call the police, and Marty said he wouldn't do that yet if he was him. Again, odd, Fred thought. Later that morning, when Bobby hadn't returned, Fred called the police. He told him his son was missing, and he wanted to file a report. They said they would be over to take a statement as soon as they could. Fred then called Marty. He told him the police were coming to speak with him, and he'd like him to come over and see if he could help. The police arrived just before noon, and Marty told them the story about the hillbilly girl. Now he said he'd seen her. She'd come into the public store where he and Bobby worked, but when they asked him her name and description, he said he didn't know. He couldn't remember. Everything began to unravel quickly. Although all seven of the teens involved in the murder of Bobby Kent had gone about discussing, planning, and carrying out the crime without a smidgen of concern, almost as if it was a game, they now individually began to freak out. When Allie, Donnie, and Heather returned to Palm Bay, it was 3 p.m. They immediately holed up in her room, away from her parents. Much later, Allie came out and asked her mother a strange question. Is it a crime if you witness a murder and don't report it, she asked. I believe so, her mother answered. Okay, Allie simply replied. Derek Zverko went to one of his usual hangouts that day, the comic book store. He ran into an acquaintance he sometimes saw there, a kid named Terry. They sat outside in front of the pizza hut, and he told him the whole story about the murder, a guy he barely knew. They both decided that they should call a smart kid they knew named Herb Williams. Derek called him and said he'd been a witness to a murder. Well, did you kill him? Herb asked. Hell no, Derek answered. Derek then said he'd need to find someone to provide him an alibi. Herb said he doubted he could find someone who would want to get involved in covering up a murder. I think you'd be better off telling your folks about it, you know, for some moral support, Herb said. Lisa had left Marty's house before his parents returned for the day. She didn't want to be home alone, so she decided to go see her friend Claudia, who was a waitress at Pizza Hut. Man, Pizza Hut should have been our sponsor this week. Claudia had met Bobby and thought he was a jerk. Lisa walked over to Claudia's house, and she invited her into the back screened-in room where it was cool. 
Lisa then told her how they had killed Bobby the previous evening. As she continued to go into the details of the story, she began to get more hyper and animated. She was on the verge of losing it, Claudia thought. She could not believe what she was telling her. Then Lisa began talking about how she was afraid the body would be found and asked Claudia to drive her out there so she could move it. Claudia refused. Lisa got angry and left, telling Claudia she did so to keep her mouth shut. Claudia went to a payphone when she got to work that night and reported to a hotline number what Lisa had said. Two detectives showed up at the restaurant to question her. The detectives then decided to question Lisa. They had matched the name the person Claudia had said was the murder victim with the missing persons report from Fred Kent. They found Lisa at home and questioned her, but she said she didn't know anything. She seemed nervous. They went to talk to Marty. The detectives rolled up to Marty's house, and he was outside. They asked to speak to him. Since it was hot out, they asked him to sit in their air-conditioned police vehicle. He got in. One of the detectives placed a recorder between them and turned it on. He then handed him a paper to sign that said he understood he was being tape-recorded. They told him they'd heard he'd been involved in a homicide. Bobby Kent was a supposed victim, and they asked him about his involvement. He said he knew nothing. They asked him about being with a group the previous early Thursday morning, including Derek Kaufman, Lisa Connolly, and a girl named Allie. He said they had all gone to the beach. He told them the story about Bobby meeting up with the hillbilly girl. They said they'd heard Bobby had been stabbed by one of the guys that had been with him that night. They then asked if he had stabbed Bobby Kent. He answered no to everything. I think it's gang-related, he said, and told them about the Davy Boys connection. They asked him about the early morning call he'd made to the Kent home. He said he'd hung up because Bobby hadn't answered, and he thought it was rude to call so late and disturb his parents. They then asked what Marty thought had happened to his friend who was still missing. Marty dropped his head in his hands, and his voice began to tremble. I hope to God, I pray to God he's not dead because... He paused. I just don't know how I'd live the rest of my life. The last two days have been very hard on me. They thanked him for his time and left. Marty Puccio, they thought, was a lying sack of shit. Now it was time to look for a body. Detectives were now sure something really bad had happened to Bobby Kent, but they needed one of the involved party to lead them to the body, if there was one. By now, Lisa had cracked and told her mother the whole sordid story. She told her that her cousin Derek Zverko was also involved. Maureen drove Lisa over to her sister, Linda Bonert, Derek's mother's house. She told Derek's parents what Lisa had told her. It was after 10 p.m. His parents woke him up. He immediately began to cry and confessed to his involvement. They called the police. Lisa grew hysterical and Maureen took her to a motel, while her sister waited for detectives with Derek. Detective Frank Elizara showed up around midnight. After getting Derek's statement, he said he'd need him to take him to where the body supposedly was. He needed to verify that a murder had actually taken place. He drove with Derek in the front seat and pointed out where to pull over once they were near the canal at Weston. The detective stopped and got out, leaving Derek in the car. Once he headed down the embankment, the smell hit him. He saw a bloated figure halfway immersed in the water, face down. Detectives wanted to try and round up as many of the players as possible before they informed Bobby's parents. Once word was out about Bobby Kent's murder, they thought they might flee and they'd have multiple manhunts on their hands. 
Derek Zverko was taken to jail and booked for murder right after he led them to Bobby's body. Derek Kaufman was arrested at his home at gunpoint at 4 a.m. and also booked for murder. Marty was trying to get out of town, but he had no money and no transportation. He wanted to get in touch with Kaufman to see if his mafia connections could help hide him. Kaufman, already in jail, didn't answer his pages, so he called another guy who knew him, Tom Lemke. He told him he was looking for Kaufman and what he needed. Lemke called Kaufman's parents, who told him he was in jail. Lemke called the jail and left a message. Police were allowing Kaufman to take phone calls, hoping it would help to lead to their other suspects. Kaufman called him back. Lemke told him some guy named Marty was trying to get a hold of him to help get him out of town. Kaufman said to tell him he was in jail and that the jig was up. He should turn himself in. Lemke called Marty back and told him what his friend Derek had said. Christ, Marty said, fear in his voice. I thought guys in the mafia were supposed to be so tough. Mafia? Who's in the mafia? Lemke laughed. Derek's not in the fucking mafia. He hung up with Marty and called the police to tell him everything he knew. Lisa's mother told her she had to turn herself in, but Lisa threw a fit about wanting to see Marty first. Maureen left the motel to get food, and Lisa called around looking for Marty. She found him working out at the Y. What do you want, he asked her, no longer caring about her or anything. He told her he found out that Derek wasn't a mafia hitman and was already in jail spilling his guts to the cops. Lisa told him to come to the motel, and they'd figure out a way to get some money and leave. When Lisa's mother returned, she started to throw a tantrum, telling her mother she needed to see Marty. Maureen could see that one of Lisa's world-class fits was about to happen, so she appeased her by saying she would get Marty and bring him to the motel. But she had to promise that she was going to turn herself into police in the morning. She agreed. Maureen left, and 45 minutes later returned with Marty. Lisa flew into his arms like he'd just returned from the war. Marty seemed less thrilled. Maureen left to hire an attorney for Lisa, leaving the couple alone for their last night of freedom. The next morning, Maureen picked up Lisa and took her to the lawyer's office, leaving Marty asleep at the motel. The lawyer advised her to turn herself in to the police. Lisa thought they would just let her go after she was booked. He explained that this was a murder, and Florida was a capital punishment state. He would try and get her a deal, but there was no way she was going to get bail and walk out. She called Marty at the motel, and he told her it was over. He was on his way to turn himself in, too. Allie called a cop friend who was under investigation for consorting with teenage prostitutes to ask him what she should do. He told her this wasn't something she could wriggle out of like the prostitution thing. She needed to turn herself in. When she did, they got the last names they needed, Heather Swallers and Donnie Semenik, and picked them up as well. Of the seven defendants, five had made taped confessions to the police. Two had not confessed, Heather Swallers and Marty Puccio, but they had Marty on tape from that first interview inside the patrol car that incriminated him. All seven minimized their own involvement in the murder and placed the blame on the others. Now that they were all in custody, Hollywood police detectives arrived at the Kent home to break the news of what they already dreaded they'd hear. When they told them about their son's murder by his best friend Marty Puccio, Bobby's mother's wails could be heard down the block where the Puccios lived. All the defendants were tried separately, but their lawyers met as a group to discuss strategy. One strategy that was successful was to try and continue to delay the proceedings. The trial was continually postponed and did not begin until September 1994, 14 months after the murder. Another strategy was not as successful. 
they didn't have much to defend their clients, so they came up with one that had been used recently, a defense called urban psychosis. The theory was that urban youths were numbed by the violence and the immorality of the world they were now growing up in, so they could no longer distinguish from right and wrong. When the media got wind of it, they were ridiculed. First of all, they reported, these kids weren't urban. Urban psychosis had been used to defend a young black girl who'd grown up in a violence-infested housing project, not privileged white kids whose families bought them new cars, designer clothes, and sent them to private religious schools. One law professor was quoted as saying, terminal boredom is not a defense. Their attorneys backed off from this line of defense. At this point, they believed the best outcome would be just to save most of them from receiving the death penalty. The girls had a better shot, they knew. Juries didn't like to send young girls to prison, let alone death row. Marty's trial began first, in September 1994. The prosecution told the court that Marty harbored jealousy and hatred for Bobby Kent. He accused him of picking on him and embarrassing him in front of others. Lisa egged her boyfriend on to seek revenge against Bobby and enlisted her friends to help. It was as simple as that. They had plenty of witness statements as to the murder, including Tom Lemke, Claudia Arbelez, and even more than that, Marty had bragged about the murder to other inmates while awaiting trial. Heather Swallers had already been given a reduced sentence of 7 to 15 years for her cooperation and in exchange for her plea of guilty to second-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. Derek Zverko had been given the same plea bargain and received a sentence of 7 to 20 years. Both Heather and Derek testified at Marty's trial and provided details of the murder. It didn't help Marty's case that during closing statements when the prosecutor was describing how Bobby was so brutally murdered, that jurors looked over to see the defendant had fallen asleep. With their defense tanking, they decided to put Marty on the stand. Throughout his testimony, he referred to his best friend since third grade not as Bobby, but as Kent. He said he'd brought the knife with him at Bobby's insistence, since where they were going to drag race had been known to be frequented by gangs and might be dangerous. Donnie Semenik had stabbed him because he believed Bobby had raped his girlfriend Allie. Bobby then had rolled around in a rage and rushed at Marty. Marty had the knife in his hand and, without thinking, he said, defended himself by stabbing Bobby in the stomach. It was all self-defense. However, he could not explain why he had sliced his neck and then stabbed him in the heart. The trial lasted eight days. The prosecutor ended his closing statements by pointing out that while Marty said he was so badly bullied by Bobby, he still hung out with him every day, lifting weights and hanging out at the beach and in each other's homes. He'd had a chance to get away if things were so bad. He had moved to upstate New York with his aunt, but had returned and immediately began hanging out with Bobby again. No, Marty had been encouraged by his girlfriend to kill his best friend so that they could be alone. And once the planning began, Marty bought into a pack mentality and did nothing to stop it or even warn his friend. He'd, in essence, become like a bloodthirsty animal without any regard for human life. He got excited about committing murder against his longtime friend and even came dressed for the occasion. That night, he had arrived at Bobby's house wearing a long black trench coat and a red bandana tied around his head like Rambo. The jurors didn't take long to decide that Marty Puccio was guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy. In the summer of 1995, the judge fixed his penalty as death in the electric chair. The other four trials were held that year. Allie Willis, who had lured Bobby Kent to his death, was found guilty of second-degree murder and conspiracy and sentenced to 40 years. 
Donnie Semenik was found guilty of second-degree murder and conspiracy and sentenced to life in prison. Derek Kaufman was found guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Lisa Connolly, who persuaded Marty to kill his friend in the first place, found the friend to lure him to a secluded spot to murder him, enlisted her cousin to help in the killing, and set up the planning and talked everybody into committing the murder, was painted by her high-profile attorney, K.O. Morgan, as an innocent bystander at her trial. The jury didn't buy it. But like her attorney had originally stated, the jury was not willing to give her the maximum punishment. Instead, they let her off of the first-degree murder charge and convicted her on only the second-degree charge. However, when the time came for sentencing, the judge went far beyond the normal sentencing guidelines for a second-degree murder conviction. What normally was set at a maximum of 22 years in prison, she received a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. But as we know, appeals happen, and sometimes they work. Here's where all seven defendants are now. Heather Swallers, who made a deal and pled guilty, served five years and was released in 1998. She has two children and lives in Georgia. Derek Zverko, who also made a deal and pled guilty, served six years and was released in 1999. He quit working as a truck driver because he was a single father. He now lives in Missouri. Allie Willis, who now goes by the name Alice Slay, had her sentence of 40 years commuted to 17 years in prison and was released on parole in 2001. She was placed under community supervision for 40 years and was in court in 2013 for a probation violation, which was then dismissed. She is a stay-at-home mother and lives in Melbourne, Florida. Not long ago, she appeared on the Dr. Drew show to confess to a longtime friend about her involvement in Bobby Kent's murder. However, she now insists that she had no idea that her friends were planning to kill him. She says she thought they were merely going to beat him up, contrary to what multiple witnesses have said actually happened. Derek Kaufman is still serving his life sentence at a state prison near Tampa. Donnie Semenik is serving his life sentence at Claremont Prison. There is an online petition to free him. His supporters believe that he was unfairly accused of being equally complicit in the murder. Marty Puccio's death sentence was vacated in 1997, and he was resentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He has gone into jail ministry work. Lisa Connolly's sentence of life in prison was reduced on appeal to 22 years. She was released on parole in 2004. She gave birth to Marty Puccio's daughter while first incarcerated. Her child initially was raised by Lisa's grandfather until she was released. Lisa Connolly married and had a son. She now lives in Pennsylvania and is a certified optician. Her daughter moved out of state to attend college. Marty Puccio has not kept in touch with her or her mother. As I researched this case, I found that not one of the seven people involved in the brutal murder of Bobby Kent has completely admitted to their part in the plot, nor shows any remorse. I will end with two quotes that I think sum this case up. Derek Zverko, who brought one of the murder weapons and helped drag Bobby Kent, broken and bleeding, but not yet dead into the water, the coroner's report said he had water in his lungs, so he was still breathing when he was thrown into the canal gave this quote to reporters in 2013. Honestly and truthfully, 
I've made peace with this a long time ago, he said. I don't have any bad dreams about it. I don't think about it. I don't dwell on it. I don't ponder it. I've moved on. Layla Kent, Bobby's sister, says, It disgusts me that they have freedom after killing someone. They're horrible people, and they should be ashamed of what they did. They don't even deserve to be alive. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. There won't be an episode released next week. I'm taking the week off to work to improve the audio for the show, as well as to work on some merchandising, things that I never have enough time to complete. So look for that in the future. I will be back the week after with another chapter of With Friends Like These. In the meantime, if you're looking for some other episodes about Deadly Friends, I can refer you to a couple of great ones. Episode 9 of Misconduct Podcast and Episode 23 of The Apex and the Abyss both cover the Skyler Niece case. And Episode 98 of Sword and Scale details a fascinating case about a friend murdering a friend that I had never heard before. I'd like to ask you to do me a small favor that will only take about two minutes of your time. I have a quick online survey for you to fill out that will help me in future planning. It's only six questions, and I promise it's painless. Please go to survey.libsyn.com slash onceuponacrime. And if you fill that out this week, I'd really appreciate it. That's survey.libsyn.com slash onceuponacrime. There's a link in the show notes. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>